Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Today's scripture reading is from Hebrews 10, verses 38, and Hebrews 11, verses 1, 6, 13, and through 13 through 16. My righteous one will live by faith. My soul takes no pleasure in anyone who shrinks back. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped, the conviction of things not seen. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would approach him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. All of these died in faith without having received the promises, but from a distance they saw and greeted them. They confessed that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth. For people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land that they had left behind, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Indeed, he has prepared a city for them. My name is Ian. I'm the pastor here at Ecclesia. We're so glad you're here. Uh, We are a brand new church. We've been gathering for about seven months now. And it's been just incredible to watch how God is beginning to work in and through our community. So we are so grateful that you're here. Brenda, thanks for that beautiful reading. The worship team, my goodness, right? It was really, really beautiful. So I hope you're joining your voices, lifting your hearts. I hope you're hearing something that maybe even we're not saying in the midst of that. And then we have some incredible hospitality people that show up every week. Did anybody have the Ethiopian coffee that's on the table this morning? Like, yes, Lord. If you did not believe in God before you walked in, you are now a believer, and we are so glad to have converted you this morning. Um, Friends, this morning we're continuing a series called A Beautiful Life. And, and for me, it's, it, when I think about the peace and the kinds of things that Jesus offers, I, I think about the kinds of life that he's calling me towards. Uh, so often I get sort of tangled up in, in just how God is suffering uh, alongside us and with us and how he's overcoming that. And, and, and for so much of us, our lives are, are informed by the fact that life is just kind of hard. And so the question we're kind of wrestling with during this series is what, what are the things in the midst of all the pain and all the uncertainty of life, what are the things that God has for us as the most beautiful, the most true, as he works not in spite of our pain, as we talked about last week, but bringing joy and bringing life through them. And so this, this morning we want to talk about faith. And as Brenda read for us, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, I want to just dissect that sentiment for just a moment. Because on its face, this is an absurd statement. This is circular reasoning at its finest. Now, picture the following interaction. Person one says, tomorrow, Martians are going to land on the earth. Okay. Person two How do you know that? Person one, I believe it. Logically, the faith that it will happen is offered as the assurance that it will happen. Do you see what's going on there? How do you know that Martians are going to land on the earth? Well, I believe it. 
And this is kind of what's going on at the beginning of Hebrews. Now, critics of this sort of faith have pounced on this and have said, this this is absurd. This paints the actual uh, insanity of being a faithful and believing person. Uh, The late atheist Christopher Hitchens says, faith is the surrender of the mind. It's the surrender of reason. It's the surrender of the only thing that makes us any different from other animals. It's our need to believe and to surrender our skepticism and our reason, our yearning to discard that and put all our trust or faith in something or someone. That is the sinister thing to me. Out of all the virtues, all the supposed virtues, faith must be the most overrated. So this morning we start with this question. We're really confronted with it. Is faith just a blind surrender of our reason, as Christopher Hitchens says? Is faith a crutch that we fashion to make ourselves feel better in a world that is ultimately meaningless, is ultimately just kind of an accident? Now consider the following interaction. Uh, We have Steve and Jerry here. Let's see. Yeah, yeah, all right, Steve. I don't, know any, I don't know any Jerry's right now, so I don't know where that name came from. Steve says, it's raining. God has heard our prayers and is healing our crops so that we can provide for our families and our neighbors. He loves us. God is so good. And then there's one of these in every group. You know, the kind of wah-wah person. And so we have Jerry here. A little bit of a Debbie Downer. If you don't know it is, who it is in your group, be aware it might be you. But Jerry says, um, no, it's raining because surface water has evaporated up into the atmosphere and this condensed water vapors have finally saturated the clouds to the point where it precipitates. Thank you, Jerry. Now, what's going on here? These two people are making meaning. Person one is saying that there is a greater significance attached to what's happening. Now, notice as well, Their conclusions, person one, uh, Steve here, Steve's conclusions do not preclude the conclusions of Jerry, right? They both can interact, but, but Jerry's conclusions are bound to the things that he can observe. Now, they're, they're, they're both able to correctly identify how the rain is falling. They both sense that it's raining, but Jerry, he identifies the source of it. He, he explains it in such a way that he thinks that he has understood it. And for Jerry, the question of what does this rain mean, ultimately, nothing, right? Why is it raining? Well, because the water cycle has gone to its fullest conclusion. It is uh, circular in nature. And for Jerry, the meaning for the rain is completely contained within the event itself. But for Steve, he does not have to discount his reason, He can marry the how, i.e. the water cycle, and the why that God is orchestrating and is moving behind the scenes, sustaining and nurturing the land and providing for his people. You see, for Steve and for Jerry, they're they're making meaning. They're, They're applying a reason for why this is happening. And for Jerry, ultimately the answer is there is no reason. These processes play out in our world and they just happen. But for Steve... He doesn't have to check his reason at the door. He just offers a reason that's further downstream, that God may be the one behind the water cycle. 
And so we want to begin to explore, like, is faith just a blind checking of our reason at the door, as Christopher Hitchens would say? Now, we try to make meaning in our world. It's something that we do. What, what does this all mean? We, because we conceive of our lives in some way as a story. Now, people in our culture offer all sorts of cliches and platitudes to try to impart meaning to moments, especially moments of pain. And if you've ever had anybody say anything like this to you, well, everything happens for a reason. Or, or th- you know, if you've lost somebody and somebody's trying to offer consolation and they see you in their grief and they're saying, well, they're in a better place now. And friends, just as an aside, you know, wh- one of the books in the Bible is called Job and Job is suffering immensely. And his friends come and the first thing they do is they sit with Job and they don't say anything for seven days. And then they start talking. Can I just encourage you, if you have friends that are going through immense loss and pain, don't offer your explanations. Sit with them. Be with them. That's just a little bonus. People say things like, it will all work out or it is what it is. What are they doing? They're trying to express a vague faith that there is a coherence in the world, that it isn't random that something is, is to be made of all of it, that it isn't meaningless. They're making meaning. I want to offer a simple, maybe formulaic definition of faith today that's going to guide us. And anytime we're talking about something as big as faith, we have to kind of break it down and look at it from different angles. So this is the angle that we're going to look at it from today. Faith is a journey that remembers the past and imagines the future. Faith is a journey that remembers the past and imagines the future. And so today what I want to do is to to kind of break down this formula and to see how Hebrews 11 specifically is helping us to see what it looks like to walk with God in light of this journey. And, And as we start to talk about imagination, you may think that I'm falling right into Christopher Hitchens' trap. Right? We, we tend to think of imagination as, as constructing worlds that don't exist, as making things up. If somebody says to a little kid, oh, you have quite the imagination, usually they're talking to somebody that doesn't exist. Right? They've got their little imaginary friend. Right? And for so many people, this is the way they conceive of faith is that a a group of people in the world, you know, several billion of them, it just so happens, have constructed this imaginary thing that somehow comforts them and brings them some sense of solace in this vast void that is our universe. You know, Carl Sagan describes our planet as this tiny blue speck, this tiny blue dot that just floats throughout the vast cosmos. We're all trying to just make sense of the world, trying to make ourselves feel better that there is some meaning. And so when I talk about imagination, what I want to do today is to help us to see that imagination is a vital part of our existence as humans. It's not something that we reconstruct things that don't exist, but it actually gives meaning and life to the life that we live here and now. The philosopher James K.A. Smith says of imagination, imagination is a kind of faculty by which we navigate and make sense of our world. Philosopher C.S. Lewis said that reason is the organ of truth. Imagination is the organ of meaning. And so you can go back to our friends Steve and Jerry. 
Jerry has sort of constructed this world where his reason is the place where things stop. But for Jerry, he can see that God may be doing something beyond. And so faith for us today is a journey that remembers the past and imagines the future. So we we go back to our original verse, Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Is this formula a fantasy, the point where faith sort of folds in on itself. We're trying to convince ourselves that there's something out there, something bigger, a myth that comforts us and helps us to get through this life. Well, this is not the biblical conception of faith. The notion of biblical faith is not of a blind and unreasoned hope. The notion of biblical faith is not taking a blind leap and hoping it all works out. Biblical faith is built upon a response to the things that God has said and done in the world. Now, as, as we started to plant this church, I get to spend a lot of time just kind of with people. And, and eventually we start talking about, you know, what it is I do, how it is that I can spend so much time in coffee shops. Like, what do you do? And I like to think they, they think I'm like a best-selling New York Times author or something. I like to let them think that for a little while. And then eventually it comes out, I'm a pastor. And my parish just happens to be this coffee shop. And, and usually I love the conversations and the interactions. I, I, I find so much life in them. And I, I talk to so many people who grew up, they were forced to go to church. Maybe they grew up Catholic. They did the whole CCD thing. They took their first communion. And at that point, they realized that they had sort of punched their ticket and they didn't have to go anymore, except for on Christmas and Easter, which I'm, I'm, I'm so sympathetic to. And, and usually I ask the question, I'm like, so you used to, you used to have to go. You felt like that was something you, you should do. And now you don't go to church. Like, what's with that? Like, is, it, is there something more to it? And often their answers uh, run sort of a, along a common refrain that I hear people saying is that the, the Bible and church just seems like it, it's, it's a bunch of rules. You see, people have taken this concept of the Ten Commandments, which is really the most famous part of the Bible, and then they just kind of expand that to the whole of it. So e- even Jesus, they sort of just imagine that he was walking around ordering people to do stuff and telling them and teaching them, this is how you don't be a horrible, sinful person. This is how you live like I do. And I understand where people get this misconception. Again, it usually comes from the church that they grew up in. But that's not really what the Bible is, is it? And one of my favorite parts of this interaction is just getting to tell them stories about Jesus. Uh, It's getting to say, hey, have you heard this story? Jesus was accused of being a drunken and a a glutton. And so, uh, what is that? Why would that be in the Bible? And so, starting to hopefully reframe some of their concept of just what they think the Bible is, before we start talking about what is the content of what it means to be a faithful person. Now, the Bible as a whole is a complex library of different books and genres, stories that center around God revealing himself in the lived history of humanity. You know, one of the amazing things about the scriptures is that they're all, like, have a geography attached to them. They have names and places. Sometimes you read in places like Genesis, and they give you these obscure names. And I find those to be so, like, not just ancillary, like an extra part of the Bible, but actually part of its integrity and part of its beauty. 
Because God is saying that I'm a God who's big and cosmic and over all the universe, but I work in these little far-flung places. And then God speaks and he moves throughout the history of the scriptures. And then eventually this all culminates with the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, who's born in this little nothing town called Bethlehem. And he grows up and most of his life is lived in obscurity. Like Jesus lived maybe somewhere between 30 and 33 years. And we only know about really a small fraction of that part of his life. And, and I find this so incredible. The Gospels, the books called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're biographies of Jesus, stories telling the kinds of things that he said and he did. Friends, the Bible, if it has anything to say about the kind of God that we're talking about this morning, is not a list of rules of thou shalt and thou shalt not. The Bible is a story a story that reflects the world as it is, and a story that reflects it as it, God wants it to be. And now we have parachuted right to the end of Hebrews, where the author, whoever that is, has been constructing his argument for why the audience can trust, why they can keep going. You see, if you remember from last week, if you were here, we talked about a little bit about the situation that the Hebrews were facing. It, you know, at one point it just says, you have rejoiced because your property was being taken from you. The writer of Hebrews is talking to a group of people who are under intense persecution and for whom it's, it would be very easy for them to stop pushing, to stop going. These are not people for, for whom everything is going well. And as we drop into this point, the, the author hasn't been pointing to all these psychological and scientific uh, philosophical facts, but he's saying this is the story. This is what Jesus has done. And so he's telling history. And everything that the author has to say to the audience flows from the stunning reality of what Jesus of Nazareth has done on a cross outside of Jerusalem. In Hebrews 1, the author summarizes the whole of the story. He says, Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. For a first century person, when they said the prophets, they're understanding the whole of Scripture. Uh, the, the prophets were the, was the Old Testament as we understand it. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. When he had made purifications for sins, and this is what the author of Hebrews understands is what Jesus accomplished on the cross, was purifying us from all uh, slavery to sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God. This seat at the right hand, as we'll see in Hebrews 12, is where Jesus is sitting. And the author tells us to fix our eyes. This seat is the seat of honor and of power. Jesus is enthroned as the world's rightful king. And now we tend to think of faith as something that's associated with the future. And it most certainly is. But faith in the Bible, the kind of faith that we're talking about today, is a future informed by a storied memory. We tell the story of what God has done in the past in order to frame, to understand, to live faithfully in the present and towards our future. Now, if I asked you today, just a very difficult question, do you think the sun will rise tomorrow? 
we'd be talking about the future, right? We'd be talking about tomorrow, the, the, a time that has yet to elapse. But your answer, I would guess, would be completely informed by the past. Likely you would say yes, not because you have some ability to tell the future, ESP, but because in your experience there has never been a day when the sun did not rise. And in that way, your faith that the sun will rise tomorrow is actually quite reasonable. In much the same way, we tell the story of what Jesus has done in the past because what we're saying is that, first of all, when we talk about faith, it's not about our faith. It's about the faithfulness of Jesus, about what God has done in the world. For centuries, the church has declared in in, in sort of a micro formula what we believe together, what we believe that Jesus has done. And so I want to just put that on the screen. This is called the Apostles' Creed. Somewhere in the 8th century, the church has really started to uh, pray this consistently. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, that means universal, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And Ecclesia, can you see how much of that is grounded in the past tense? Crucified, died, and buried, descended to the dead, ascended into heaven. And how much of that is grounded in what God has done? But then there's this beautiful present tense that grounds us, that involves us in the story. I believe. I have faith. I have declared that this is true, not only of the past, but that this is true of me right now. So faith is an understanding that doesn't have to check our memories at the door or our reason. In Hebrews 11, the author of Hebrews has, has begun to recount the past. Now, this chapter uh, goes through all these heroes of the faith, from Abraham to Isaac, uh, to all these people in the Old Testament. Um, this chapter is often referred to as the Hall of Fame of faith. But that's not the way Hebrews uses these stories. You see, a Hall of Fame, I don't know if you've ever been to like Cooperstown or maybe the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. I've, I've never been to any of those. Anybody like those kinds of things? Just a, a Hall of Fame is nothing but a museum, Right? a cordoned-off memorial to the accomplishments of the past. But Hebrews 11 is not a laundry list of faithful people. These stories are an invitation to us, an invitation to imagine our present and our future in light of what God has done and what people have done as they walked with God in the past. They ground faith reasonably in the accomplishments of the past, and they invite us to see our present lives and our futures in light of these stories. In Hebrews 10, verse 38, the author quotes Habakkuk saying, the righteous shall live by faith. And then he proceeds to give us examples of righteous people living by faith in God. 
But he doesn't stop and say, look how cool that was. He says that their faith that was exercised in the past now still sustains them in the future. That they are a great cloud of witnesses, as Hebrews 12 verse 1 tells us. The author is telling us that the righteous have lived by faith in the past. They live by faith in the present, and they live by faith forevermore. And just as we need oxygen to breathe, we need faith now and into eternity that the story of grace, the faithfulness of Jesus, will never fail us, will never run out, not now or in the future. The story is reasonable because it grounds our stories in what Jesus has done. The story awakens our imaginations because it causes us, and this is the question that we've been wrestling with as a church, what would it look like for the Jesus story to be true of my life and our life and our city right here and right now? What would it look like for Jesus to be king of this place? We take what Jesus has done and we look off into the future. Now, one of the things that I find when we focus on faith is we focus on what we do. Like when you're talking about faith, you're like, okay, God, if I could just have more faith, then I could do more for you. The things that God will accomplish when we extend our faith in his power and all that that will mean for the world, all the beauty and light that that will give. Now this is all good and well, but it's, it's kind of a downstream effect of the story. Up to the point in Hebrews, the word faith has been used a considerable amount of times, but the focus has not been on our faith Not that we have to somehow conjure up some level of belief, but on the faithfulness of Jesus. That he is the one who is faithful. Our faithfulness is derivative, the answering amen to his grace. And the purpose of our faith, friends, is not to increase our ability to do for God. You know, I've been been struck by the whole, the Kanye thing. Uh, You know, again, I I like hip-hop. I grew up on it. I don't think the album's that good, but that's... That's beside the point. But because it was Christian, people get real excited about it. They're just like, oh, it's a Christian hip-hop album. Like, there hasn't been Christian hip-hop before. But people see Kanye as kind of this, like, icon of, like, wow, if Jesus can get a hold of his heart, like, look at the things that God can accomplish through Kanye. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what I think God wants from Kanye? His heart. You know, you know what I think God wants from Kanye is, is not what he can do through him, that God is using us like these instruments and these tools to accomplish this faceless plan. But what I think God wants from Kanye is his is heart, is for him to know him. And so I pray. I don't, I don't know anything about Kanye. I don't have his cell phone number. Uh, if he needs a pastor, I'm open to it. That's all I'm saying. But I pray that Kanye surrounded by people that will faithfully walk with him, that will help him uh, to, to just rest in the love of Jesus, to not feel like he has to do something for God and put out albums immensely because he's been given this platform. Like, that all comes. But faith is inviting us not to accomplish all these things. Again, that comes, but it comes because of a relationship with Jesus, a daily dependence on him where we learn to trust him and to see the heart of God. And for me, I want to live a faithful life. I, I want to accomplish these incredible things for God. I want this church to be so faithful in the way that we live together that this place is forever and irrevocably changed. 
Like I want it to, this town and this city and our neighbors to see the beauty of Jesus. I want those big things. I want to be a part of revival and renewal for God to renew his deeds of old in our day. Like that's what I want to see. But ultimately, what we see in Hebrews is that God wants first, he wants to do all those things, yes and amen, but he wants our hearts. And for me, stepping out to plant this church, we started uh, to build a team about two years ago from where we are now. And honestly, for us, for Courtney and I, my wife, it was really unlike anything we'd ever done before. Trying to envision, like, how how do you bring a church from the ground up. How do, you, how do you start to envision? And there's a lot of collected wisdom like how you do these things, but ultimately still, even though you can read blogs and uh, websites and talk to people, you still have to do it. And so it's just that immense sense of being overwhelmed. Have you ever been overwhelmed? And I started reaching out to people because I knew, I knew I needed to raise money. I had worked at a church for 10 and a half years. And, and, and for me, like every week of my life, was ordered by that Sunday gathering, like I was a worship leader and a youth pastor, so everything in our lives, really as a family, flowed from this central element of Sunday morning. And as we started to plant the church, just because the church planting phase is so different, we weren't meeting like, like we are today, gathering every Sunday. And so it's like all the things that had been constant in my life were suddenly gone. They were completely taken away. All the things that had given me a sense of normalcy, my job, like all of a sudden I go from working for a legitimate organization to working for myself. And people are like, what do you do? I'm like, I, I, I run a nonprofit. <laughs> Trying to start a church, right? I had this sense of like, there, there's always this sense of impending doom when you're responsible for the whole of the organization. All these things that give me normalcy, job, church, community, even like the people that we'd surrounded ourselves in our lives just weren't calling anymore. And so we're like, kind of feel alone and untethered. And let me just tell you, just to be honest, because I'm a really good pastor, I was freaking out. Like constantly, like you could read, you know, you know when people type in all caps online, it's like, hey, pay attention to this. Like in my notebooks, like the scrawlings of a crazy person, just like, God, help me now. And I just remember so many times, I was just like, Lord, seriously? Is, it, is this what you want? Like, I, I feel like I'm just dying. Like, I'm just gasping for breath all the time. And that's my whole life. And then I have these sweet kids that, you know, Courtney and I are trying to take care of. Like, don't you care about them too, right? You know the things we need. You know we need, we need people. We need, we need money to make this happen. Like, God, you got to do something. And as like, you know, the car is a great place to shout at God because you can just be as crazy as you want in your car. And here's the thing. What I found was that the answer to that question, is this what you want, may have been exactly yes. May have been God saying to me, yeah, this is what I've been after all along. You know what, Ian? In the grand scheme of things, I don't know if I care about the kind of church you're going to plant, but what I do care about is do you know me? Do you trust me? Do you love me? As I'm freaking out and yelling at God, I think God's sort of sitting there saying like, it's about time. I've been waiting for you. 
And look, I, I can honestly say, and I don't want to argue from results, that God has been so faithful. He has been so faithful as he invited me on this journey, as he did throughout the Old Testament. He invites Abraham to leave his homeland, to go from the place of his security, and to travel with him to an unknown country. God has been so good. God has been there with us at every step of the way. And I think what I've seen through all of this, as we sort of, as, not that I'm on the other side or have completely figured it out, but if you would have asked me before we started this church what faith was, because I had gone to seminary, I would have told you a nice long answer. But mostly what I would have given you is a definition. But having walked through this long season of uncertainty, of pain, of letting go, what I found is that God calls us to faith in Him so that we might see what it means to live in relationship with Him. To understand our journey as completely dependent upon God. This is why when God rescues the people out of Egypt, He brings them through the wilderness. He's not cruel. He's training them at what it means to depend on Him. And He shows up constantly. He shows up as fire by night, cloud by day. He provides food for them. And what we see is that when we extend our faith in response to his faithfulness, he will not fail us. Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16, in talking about these people who were exemplars of this kind of relationship, this kind of journey with God, the writer says, all of these, all these people that I'm talking about, died in faith without ever having received the promises. But from a distance they saw and greeted them. They confess that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth. For people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land that they had left behind, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. What a statement. When God invites us to walk with him, he awakens in us a longing, a longing that's been there all along, a longing for a more solid place, for a country that is not our own. And there we see as at the end of Ezekiel, God is there. He is preparing for us a place, a place of hope, a place of life eternal, and where we will, our faithfulness will never exhaust, never run out, because his faithfulness has shone forth in all the earth. God is calling us, friends, and we get this sense to a journey. Like how many of you play in your AirPods every time you're walking around? Because you can just put a soundtrack to your life, right? Like you put in your earbuds or whatever, and you can just like, you, you sense that there's a story unfolding, and you can put the music behind it. Faith is a journey, friends, that remembers the past and imagines the future. And you know what I, I've become certain of? Is that God wants us all to extend this kind of faith towards him. Not because he's like, okay, now I have to test you, but because that is the way to the fullness of life. Hebrews tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. His presence is our assurance in this present tense that he is with us, that he will never fail us. His presence as we walk along this journey is the down payment of the future when we will be home with him forever. Faith takes the story, these things that God has done, 
and it projects it into our lives now and forevermore. Faith says that all of this, every little piece of your life, the pieces that seem so mundane, are an opportunity to meet with God, have something to say about a future that awaits us in the future. C.S. Lewis, as he concludes the Narnia stories, he points us to this reality, this longing for a country that is not our own, because faith is not just about the present. It's not just about trusting God in the here and now. It's about trusting God off into the future. And Lewis writes of the characters as they've arrived at this heavenly bliss, that all their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Friends, our faith is training for this kind of life. Heaven is not some state of unmoved bliss. It is a story and a relationship, a journey with God that will go on into the future. Faith is built upon the memory of the past, but imagines the future. And I don't know about for you, but that kind of longing, that kind of beauty, that kind of ongoing trust and relationship with God is the kind of future I want to put my life behind, both now and forevermore. Let's pray. Beautiful God, you invite us to faith. Not, not, not so you can test us and know what we're worth, God, but because it is the way that you extend your grace, Lord, the, the reformers understood that we are saved by your grace, by the things that you have done through faith alone. And God, as we begin to step into the reality of your presence, Lord. We begin to walk a journey that, that makes sense of the world and our longings and the things that happen to us, that we find you in the midst of it. God, in our lowest moments, we find that you are the faithful one, that you have never left us. You will never leave us or forsake us. God, in our moments where we accomplish these incredible things for you, we find that you are behind the scenes doing more than we could ask or imagine. And so, God, we simply come before you today asking, Lord, give us faith. Lord, let this, let this uh, understanding of faith not awaken us uh, to something that we could never take hold of, but let it awaken a desire in us. God, a, a desire for your presence. God, a desire for the journey, a desire to know you, and ultimately a desire for that country that awaits us all. God, as we put our faith in you, we find that you are ever more faithful, that you have already gone before us. You are our forerunner and our pioneer. We fix our eyes upon you this morning. Jesus, we ask all of these things in your name, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.